speak. It's great for our kids. It's great for ourselves uh, as we meet together in a busy summertime. If your summer's been like my summer, it's been full of a lot of coming and going. But uh, it is also where the Vacation Bible School can be a real highlight to our summer. And so we're thankful for that. I'm thankful for the little skit here that was presented. Uh, this gives a little bit of the, the entry that uh, I want to use for our lesson tonight and for the beginning and introduction to my lesson. Uh, we realize that the Bible has uh, always been questioned and looked at by mockers and scoffers and, and skeptics as being uh, something that's just a work of fiction. Uh, even the people that will kind of mildly accept the Bible, uh, for example, our Muslim friends and neighbors, uh, they call us the people of the book, and they will believe in uh, Abraham, and they'll believe in Moses, and they'll believe in Jesus, even as all being prophets of God, but they always insist that through, uh, through the Christian hands that the book and the message of those prophets has been corrupted. And that is kind of mild uh, opposition in, uh, in contrast to what we find going on in supposedly scholarly circles today. And uh, let me see if I can advance the slide here. There have always been challenges to God's word. One of the foremost among modern people who challenge this is a professor by the name of Bart Ehrman. And Mr. Ehrman holds a doctorate and he teaches at the University of North Carolina. Uh, he wrote a book that was a bestseller on the New York Times list about a decade, maybe a decade and a half ago. And it was called uh, um, uh, The uh, Misquoting Jesus was the title of it. And in this, uh, he said not only is the Bible uh, riddled with inconsistencies and outright forgeries, but the uh, Bible has, it contains many fundamental stories and doctrines that don't actually exist within its pages. And as a result, uh, they, uh, he said, these are later inventions by people trying to make a sense of the disconnected texts. Here's a man who's got his degree, an advanced degree in religion, teaches religion in a college setting, but he doesn't believe that the Bible is the word of God. And in fact, he's done and made quite a living by asserting that the Bible is just kind of like all the other documents that we have from that period of time where there were many, many documents written by the supposed Christian folks and it's just this collection of, uh, of books that have been placed together and called the Bible. And uh, this is really not what God intended for us. And so through the centuries, whether on a popular level or on a scholarly level, there have been challenges to the Bible. And if we're going to study really apologetics... And that's the, the technical word for what we're talking about tonight. Uh, and it uses the word that uh, the Apostle Paul used. You remember in Philippians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. And that word defense there in the Greek language was apologia. And uh, it is that defense that we have to make. And we have to make uh, a defense of why we believe in God why we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and why we believe in the Bible as God's word to a world of skeptics. 
And so it's important to study these things. And I realize that this kind of study can get a little technical and it is uh, in, in some ways uh, kind of complex. Uh, what I'm going to try to do tonight is bring it down to where we can all understand what is going on in how we got the Bible. Because the Bible didn't come down to us, floated down out of heaven in the books that we have from Genesis to Revelation. That's not how it came to us. Now that's the form we find it in now. But it has come to us in the revelations that God gave through his spokesman. And uh, this process, we could just kind of liken it in, in a certain way to the idea of a chain and links in a chain. And think of the links of the chain that uh, start in heaven and reach down to earth. And this is how uh, we got the Bible. In, this, in these links on the chain, there are four uh, links that I think are indispensable for us to know and be aware of and then to understand so that we can know uh, and be assured of that we have God's word. The first link in that chain is inspiration. Inspiration. What do we mean by inspiration? Sometimes uh, I live over in Daytona Beach and uh, uh, we have friends that come and visit and they'll talk about uh, getting up and going to see the sun come up over the ocean and oh, it was so inspiring. Well, there are many things in God's creation that when we can look at, it is inspiring to us, isn't it? It lifts up our spirits and it fills us uh, with the uh, confidence uh, that God has given to us. But that's not what we mean by inspiration. Inspiring is the effect that something has on me. What we want to understand by the word of inspiration is the effect that God had on these words to produce these words. Inspiration is that word for being God-breathed. And we know the certain passages that talk about inspiration like uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 20 and 21. Paul makes some of the same aff uh, affirmations in other places. Uh, you remember he told uh, the Thessalonian brethren in Thess 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that you received this word and he said when you received it, you didn't receive it as the word of men, but you received it as it truly is the word of God. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about inspiration. That's the first link. The second link in the ch chain is to understand man's recognition that this was inspired word, that these were indeed the words that came from God. And today we have that wrapped up in the idea of the idea of canonicity. And canonicity just means uh, what are the books that we accept as being those inspired books and what are the books that aren't like that? And that's involved in this concept of canonicity. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the third idea of uh, this link that we have reaching down from heaven down to earth is then the transmission of these words. God, you know, and uh, gave these words to these men in the Old Testament. A person like Moses, as God said to him, write down these words. Moses wrote in the Hebrew language. Then when we find in the New Testament where there were the divinely uh, uh, inspired men who authored the books, they wrote in the Greek language. Brethren, I don't read Hebrew. And I can make out some things in Greek. And so I depend on a translation of the Bible. 
and a transmission of that word. And we've depended on these being faithfully copied through the centuries up until our day and time. And so it's these ideas of inspiration, God speaking, canonicity, man recognizing this was the word of God, and then how this word has been spread through its translations that are all involved in the process that we want to study tonight. But overriding all of this, and it is something that we never need to forget, is that God's divine providence has overseen the whole process. God said long ago through the prophet Isaiah, and then it was repeated in 1 Peter chapter 1, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Jesus, again, when he gave that prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem in Mark chapter 13 and verse 31, Jesus said, heaven and earth were going to pass away, but my word shall never pass away. And so this idea of God's word prevailing and never being overcome is, I think, just testimony to God's overseeing process from beginning to end to ensure that you and I have his word, that we can know his word, and that we can then be pleasing to him as we submit to that word. And so these are the things that we're going to be looking at tonight. Well, let's talk about and discuss in a little greater detail what we mean by inspiration. And the claims of inspiration, again, uh, abound throughout the Bible. I just want to share a few of those with you tonight. In uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, a very familiar passage of Scripture to us, all Scripture is given by God or God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished or completely furnished unto every good work. God-given. God breathed these words. This is the claim that the Bible makes. Again, Peter tells us in Second uh, Peter chapter one, verses twenty and twenty-one, that in the uh, that no prophecy ever came by any private interpretation or private production, but that uh, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And brethren, this is uh, important to know that people just didn't wake up in the Bible time and say, today I think I'm going to write a book of the Bible. It was as they were moved by God's Spirit to so write. Think of it this way. We're familiar with uh, the boats that are out on the Gulf or the boats over on the Atlantic Ocean. And some of those boats are sailboats. They don't have a motor but we know that they still go up and down the coastline. How do they do that? Because they've got that big sail that catches the wind, right? That sailboat moves as the wind moves it and that sail catches it. This is the kind of idea or the concept that is behind this idea in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. These men spoke as God moved them. Now, we can't see the wind when it's blowing that ship out on the water, but we know that it is there because the ship is moving because it doesn't have any other way of moving without that. And brethren, God's Holy Spirit, invisible to our eyes in this physical world, yet just as real, spoke to these individuals 
who wrote down these words for us. That's the Bible claim. And over and over in its passages from the Old Testament to the New, through the book of Revelation, these are the claims of the Bible. Now, just because the Bible has claimed that doesn't necessarily make that true. If you have some Latter-day Saint friends, properly known as the Mormons, you know that they claim their book, the Book of Mormon, is inspired. If you have some friends that maybe come to you from the uh, Hindu culture over in India, uh, those uh, people have sacred texts and writings they call the Vedas and other kind of things, and they claim that uh, their gods gave those uh, books of wisdom to them. And of course, we know our Muslim friends claim that the Quran is God's miracle given to the Muslim world, and they claim inspiration for that. And so here's the Bible claiming inspiration, but also here's the Book of Mormon, here are the Hindu Vedas, and here is the Quran. How are we to know of all these books that claim inspiration, how are we to know which ones are actually are inspired? Well, this is where we understand that God has given and furnished proof of the claim of inspiration. Think of predictive prophecy in the Bible. God in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, through Isaiah the prophet, he challenged the people there that they were so addicted to their idols of wood and stone. And God said, okay, let's put, put you to the test. You get these idols to tell you something in the future. Or you get these idols to tell you about something in your past. Pieces of wood and stone are silent, aren't they? And the foolishness of God's people to bow down to those pieces of wood and stone. But God in that challenge then said, put me to the test. Ask for me for something that's going to come in the future. I'll tell you. Because I'm a God. He sees it from beginning to end. God is not within time, bound by time. He is outside of time and over it all. He's seen the beginning. He's seen the end. And so he can tell us what went before. But he can also tell us at a certain period of time what's going to happen in a future point in time. And that's what he did with predictive prophecy. In our Bibles, there are over 300 prophecies Related to Jesus Christ alone. 300 prophecies just about Jesus. Where he was going to be born. Uh, the tribe that he was going to be born from. Uh, the predictions of his ministry. Of his death on the cross. But of his resurrection. More than 300 prophecies about Jesus alone. Brethren, when we find these prophecies fulfilled, and many of these prophecies were centuries beforehand, and they are over circumstances that Jesus could never control, then we see a little bit of this predictive power of God's word. Who's going to be our next president? Well, we can make a few guesses, can't we? But we don't know for sure, and that's just trying to predict 18 months from now. Now, who's going to be our next president 500 years from now? Well, you everybody shakes their head. 
First of all, we won't be around, so it won't matter. <laughs> but brethren, if God allows time to go that far, God could tell us whether there will even be a United States 800 years from now, 500 years from now. But you see, this is beyond the mind of man to be able to predict this thing. Yet when we see passages in the Bible like from Isaiah and Micah 750 years before Jesus saying he's going to be born in Bethlehem, saying he's going to come from the tribe of Judah, saying the government's going to be upon his shoulder, telling us all about his death on the cross in that great chapter of Isaiah 53. Brethren, that's predictive prophecy. Prophecy foretold, prophecy fulfilled, faith building for you and me. The Bible is what it claimed to be. We think as well of the amazing unity in the Bible. Forty different authors over a period of nearly 1,500 to 1,600 years writing on three different continents and all of those authors putting together chapters in a book that really they had no idea of the theme overall for this book. But each one of their pieces go in together, those 66 books, the 39 of the Old Testament, the 27 of the New, to tell us about the theme of the Bible, Jesus Christ. Those Old Testament books were to point to Jesus and tell us he's coming. Those New Testament gospels tell us he came and here's his ministry and here's what he did as he walked among us. Here's how he lived and here's how he died but here's how he rose again. And then those epistles in the New Testament written to those churches, to those first believers to tell them, here is how the risen Savior wants them to live, but expect this, he's going to come back one day. And so Jesus is the theme of the Bible. Now, brethren, we couldn't take anything else like that and put it together in the writings of men. But this is how the Bible has come to us. And so that amazing unity where none of these writers contradicts each other. All of this testifies again to and gives the testimony of the uh, truthfulness of the inspiration of the Bible. Then when we think of the Bible's accuracy when it speaks on scientific, historical, or geographical matters. Now get this, you have to understand, the Bible is not a book of science. But when it speaks on science, it speaks accurately. The Bible is not a book of geography. But every time that the Bible has spoken on geographic places and these kind of things, the Bible is accurate. The Bible is not a book of history. Sometimes, yes, there's a lot of history in it. But uh, sometimes our friends and neighbors pick up the Bible and they think we're going to read of everything that's ever happened in humanity from the creation all the way to the end of time. And they're disappointed when they find that uh, maybe they themselves are not in this Bible. The Bible tells us about the history that is important for what God was unfolding through his son Jesus Christ. But every time it mentions a historical fact, it's been accurate. There are over 50 characters in the Bible that have already been confirmed by archaeology. What a great testimony this is to help us to understand here again is the proof that, uh, that tells us about this inspiration. 
And, and to this, I want to add a, a fourth thing that maybe you don't find in, uh, in writings that speak on how we got the Bible. But this is my personal uh, belief, and I think the Bible speaks to the voice of the human uh, situation more than any other ancient book that we could look at. You read the story of Job and his questioning of why he suffered. Aren't we all there? Think of these tragic shootings in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio this last weekend. And other kind of shootings that take place and we, we throw up our hands and we wonder why. Well, brethren, Job was already wrestling with those questions long ago. And then we think of the things that we read in the Psalms, like Psalm 23. You know, I've never been to a funeral where they have not read Psalm 23. And though the psalm was not specifically constructed for funerals, it speaks to us, doesn't it? And sometimes so greatly in that situation, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What a comfort that is. That Psalm 23 speaks to humanity over and over again. And I'm always amazed when I go to a funeral service and I say, let's, uh, let's quote Psalm 23. How many people that, though they don't go to church and they don't participate in these kind of things, they know that psalm. And then I think about some of the parables that Jesus taught in his ministry. Luke 15 is a great chapter in my Bible. I think I could believe in the inspiration of the Bible if all I had was Luke 15. Two boys. I've got two sons. And I see sometimes the sibling rivalry that two sons have. And brethren, I know what it is to have that one son go off and live in the far country. I also know the son that will stay close at home and be that comfort. But the point in the parable is we can be lost whether we're in the far country or right at home, isn't it? And what I'm saying here, and this is, like I say, purely subjective on Bruce's part. But I believe that the Bible speaks to our human condition greater than any other ancient book. And it speaks to that because it comes from our maker. And so the Bible claims inspiration, but these things and others, I think, for me, prove the inspired nature of these works. Now, the second part of our chain link of how the Bible has come to us is in this word canon. And the word canon appears in our New Testaments. It simply means a rule or a standard. Uh, if you read in the book of Ezekiel and also in the book of Revelation, there are individuals who are given rods and they are to go and measure the city. And it was, again, a measurement that was designed to help God's people to understand God was having a place prepared for them. All right? But from that word canon, meaning standard or rule, and like this, you see in the picture and the image of the, the, uh, the ruler here, is understanding that in the books that God has inspired, that God breathed, 
Here is the standard for men to uh, hold and recognize and see. These are the books that God wants us to go by and these only. All right? This is what we mean by the idea of canon. And so it's the list of books that are recognized as scripture. And because they are given and recognized by man as being from God, man accepts them as being authoritative in his life. All right? And the honor that the Bible has held through the centuries is because the Bible or it has been recognized by mankind of this uh, nature of the difference that are in these books and that because it comes from God, we need to respect its authority on what it speaks and commands in us. Now, the issues in uh, canonicity are a little bit uh, where we need to discuss some things. Sometimes you hear some friends and neighbors saying, well, men have been and are the final determiners of the Bible. That is, we set the standard and we say these ones and not these ones. Brethren, that's a wrong understanding. It is indeed where the books are here on this list, the canon, because these are the books that were recognized that had this authority. This came from the Apostle Paul. This came from Luke. Or this came from Peter. And as a result, these men recognized that these were the men that were inspired by God in their uh, ideas. And so, the, or their words. And so, inherent in these books... Uh, is the authority already men did not give to that uh, these books any authority they didn't already have sometimes you hear some people say church councils with vested interests gave us the bible several centuries later and uh, especially was this was popularized uh, more than a decade ago you remember uh, that uh, author dan brown he wrote uh, the da vinci code and it was turned into a big movie and it's a popular seller and a the movie generated a lot of money, and you can still see it on uh, various channels. But one of the things that uh, Brown asserted in that book, and by the way, Brown tried to say this is a, a fictitious writing, but it's all based on real things. Well, brethren, uh, Brown's book was better for the tabloids at the supermarket rather than being put in and recognized that this is, has any truth in it. But Brown said, oh, is the Council of Nicaea meeting in 325 A.D., that 300 years after Jesus was here, these are the official church statements putting together the Bible. Brethren, one of the things that happened at the Council of Nicaea, they didn't even discuss the canon at all. They discussed a whole lot of other things, like the nature of Jesus. Was Jesus the Son of God, or was he just a created being? But they didn't discuss the canon. They didn't pass judgment on which books are in the canon or not. And so we need to understand church councils did not confer on these books authority they did not already have. Then sometimes you might have a friend or a neighbor who says, oh, there's lost books in the Bible. I can remember a sister when I was preaching in Daytona Beach the first time, and she brought to me a book, and it was, it was just simply titled that, Lost Books of the Bible. And as I started going through this, it's talking about books that have been known from the time that they have been in existence. Early books, yes, antique books written in Greek. And, but they were books that 
Today we list as uh, we list as apocryphal or pseudepigraphal uh, books. That is, yes, they're ancient books, but they're not inspired, and they weren't recognized in, as being inspired in the first three centuries after Jesus. And so we shouldn't recognize them as being uninspired today. They weren't overlooked or intentionally left out, or they were intentionally left out, simply because these books weren't like the books that we have. And I always say to my students when we, uh, when we study this part of church history, I say, if you want to really see the difference in these books, read them. Every one of those works are available to be read, nearly all, in English. You can read a translation of the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter and a whole bunch of other ones. Read them. And you'll see right away. The books of the Bible are up here, and these other books are down here. The best among them, we could say, they're devotional literature. There's some books I like to read, a devotional literature that uh, kind of motivate me as a Christian. If you've ever read uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that's a great little book. But brethren, I'm never going to confuse that book with a book of the New Testament. And so they're not these lost books of the Bible. There are examples that uh, were offered and God's people long ago said, no, these are not written by the men inspired by God. So these are some of the issues in canonicity. Uh, when we think about uh, the Bible, of course, there's the Old Testament. And always understand this, brethren. Yes, we know the New Testament was being put together in the time of Jesus and the apostles. But Christians always had a Bible. Now, first, it was that Bible in the Old Testament and most of the time in an Old Testament translated into Greek, this, what we call the Septuagint. But that Bible was always available for Christians. Uh, the sacred scriptures of the Hebrew Bible used in translation, Jesus himself in his risen appearance to the disciples in um, Luke 24, he said, this is the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That threefold division of the Old Testament that uh, is still kind of uh, followed by most, uh, most folks today. But here's a great statement about this Old Testament and what it meant for the faith of those Christians. George Adam Smith, who was an apologist that I think is a, was a great man in many good works that he wrote, but he said this. He said, Jesus accepted the Old Testament history as preparation for himself and he taught his disciples to find him in it. He used it to justify his mission and to illuminate the mystery of his cross. He drew from it, from the Old Testament, many of the examples and most of the categories of his gospel. He reinforced the essence of the law and he restored many of its ideals. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? Think not that I'm come to destroy the prophets, but I am come to fulfill them. But above all, he fed his own soul with its contents, and in the great crises of his life, he sustained himself upon it as upon the living and sovereign word of God. That's a tremendous thing to think about how Jesus looked at the Old Testament. 
And brethren, when he hung on the cross and those seven sayings that he gave, a couple of which are statements that come directly from the Psalms, Jesus had in his dying breath the words of God. What a great way to leave this world, wouldn't it be? We know and have confirmed for us one of the great discoveries of the 20th century, and that is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Prior to 1948, our knowledge of the Hebrew text only went back as far as 800 A.D. But with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have found words of the Old Testament. Every Old Testament book except one been found in the Dead Sea Scroll collection. And these scrolls go all the way back to 200 years before Jesus. So it moved our time of the Bible back a thousand years closer to the time of the close of the Old Testament. And this is a great discovery. If you go to Jerusalem today, one of the things that you want to go is be, go and see the Museum of the Scrolls. And there the Isaiah scroll uh, that's pictured here is uh, on display for us to see and to be reminded of, again, God's providence in his, uh, his book coming to us. When we then talk about canonicity in the New Testament, again, it is uh, the authority recognized in the words of Jesus, in the writings of his apostles, and then other uh, inspired prophets. And they used basically a fourfold criteria for which books are in the New Testament. Basically, are they apostolic? When you see something written by Paul, that's right there. When you see something written by Peter, that's right there. When you see something written by John, uh, these were the criteria for them. The second thing, were they used by recognized congregations? That is, these aren't the writings that came from some strange heretical group out in the desert. But these were from congregations that we read about in the book of Acts. And these are the books that they had and received and treasured. Ephesus, Rome, Corinth, and these places. And there those books were looked at and held in this way. Then in the third criteria, they were considered Catholic. And by this, I do not mean Roman Catholic Catholicism today like we understand it. Catholic in itself just means a word meaning universal. Did all the churches accept this? You remember Paul told, uh, Timothy, or told the Corinthian congregation in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, about verse 16, he said, as I teach everywhere in every church, Timothy was going to remind you of these things. Paul wasn't teaching something special over here and never sharing it with other congregations. No, he said, these are the things I teach everywhere in every church. And so this Catholic notion, are they recognized and accepted by all the churches is uh, this criteria. And then the fourth category, we just call that Orthodox, and that has nothing to do with Greek Orthodox Church. It simply means the idea, are they following the doctrinal rule? Think about Jude's statement in Jude 3. Jude said, Beloved, I was going to write to you, but then he said, I was constrained to write to you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. The contents of the faith. 
this is this idea of the doctrine that is correct. And so books that had those four marks, apostolic or someone closely associated with an apostle, like Luke, were they used by the congregations? Were they accepted in a wide, in wide way? And were they then in accord with the doctrine? This is how we've arrived at these books in the 27 in the New Testament. Just a couple of passages for you to notice here. First um, Timothy 5.18, the Apostle Paul says, uh, let me write it, uh, read it for you, and uh, again, we'll share this together. Paul says, the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle thee an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Two scriptures that Paul ties together here. One's from the Old Testament, book of Deuteronomy. The other is from the Gospel of Luke. And they're both talking about pay your preacher. <laughs> if he's doing the good work for you, he's worthy of his hire. All right? That's an okay concept. But the important thing here is Paul says, the scripture says. Now, if Paul was just quoting from Deuteronomy... We could readily understand the scripture says, because that's been accepted as scripture for a long time. That's the word of Moses from God's inspiration. But then he quotes the second part of that, and he's quoting from the gospel of Luke. And what he's doing is he's equating that passage in Deuteronomy with this passage in Luke, and he calls them both scripture. So not only is Paul accepting what Moses wrote as scripture, he's saying what Luke wrote is also scripture. And so, brethren, we have this idea here that the New Testament things that we find in the Gospel of Luke and in other places, we need to accept just like the Christians accepted the Old Testament passages. Uh, Paul declared that his message was from the Holy Spirit in several different places. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, speaking spiritual man speaking spiritual things. Uh, Ephesians 3, when you read this, you can understand my knowledge of the mystery of God, which in other times is not revealed, but now in these days has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. And brethren, when we understand here that these writings in the New Testament were considered in this same way. Peter talks about Paul's writings in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16. He said that there were unlearned and unstable people who twisted the scriptures. And he said they did this to the Old Testament and they did it to Paul as well. And so Peter is looking at Paul's writings and he says they're scripture, right? So this is helping us to understand how the New Testament was looked at as it was being formulated. John expected to the readers of his gospel. You remember John 20, 30, and 31? Truly many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his uh, disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And believing that fact, you might have life through his name. If John was speaking it and preaching it, they knew John, they accepted his word as a living apostle. Now here's John's written word. And John says, believe it, and you can be saved by it as well. 
And so this is the idea of the argument for the canonicity of the New Testament. Now, the transmission of this text then from the time it was put in page by the scribe, the scribe taking pen and ink. You remember 3 John 13? John says, I've got lots of other things to say to you, but uh, I don't want to do it with pen and ink. I want to come and speak to you and say these things to you face to face. Well, that's the process of transmission up until the time that uh, copy machines were invented. Until the time of the, the printing press with Mr. Gutenberg in the 1400s. And so the ancient process of writing until the invention of printing is hand copying. Brethren, have you ever tried to hand copy something yourself? And especially, I'm not saying, oh, I'm taking one word or one paragraph. I'm doing a whole long page here. It's not an easy process. We make mistakes, don't we? It's like when I go golfing. I want to go golfing with a pencil, not a pen. <laughs> I can change my score with that eraser. Right, brethren? But this idea of writing long ago. And because you were copying by hand, you had to, again, be very meticulous in how this uh, happened. And as a result, there are uh, differentiations or variations, what we'd call them, in some of the manuscript uh, evidence. And this is why we have to understand a little bit about this process. But what we have received in God's providential care for us for the New Testament is we have ancient manuscripts, nearly 5,000 in number. We have Greek papyri, some in fragments, but some in the whole books that are preserved for us where we can see these uh, copies of the uh, New Testament that were going on. Then there are lectionaries. These were uh, portions of the New Testament that were written down for public worship. And there's over 1,500 uh, of these lectionary readings that are available. Then there were numerous old translations because the Bible uh, from its beginning went very quickly into the Latin language, into the Syrian language, into the uh, Coptic language down in Egypt. And these older translations of the Bible all give testimony to the 27 books of the New Testament that we have. And then there's the writings of the church fathers, or what we call the early Christians. And these uh, men quoted the, the Bible frequently. Now, again, these men lived before the book, chapter, and verse divisions. And so you don't find in one of these old-time writers, well, I'm quoting from Matthew chapter 28. But they, you can find the quote that they have, or many times a paraphrase of it. One uh, man who has studied this has said, even if we lost every one of those 5,000 manuscripts and those Greek papyri and those translations of the New Testament, we could put together the entire New Testament, reassemble it from quotes that are found in the church fathers. Now, that's a tremendous statement there, but it all testifies to the evidence and the amount of evidence that is available so that you and I can look at the Word of God and understand uh, this is how it's come to us. 
Some of these papyrus fragments, I have some pictures here for you. These are among the oldest witnesses that we have uh, to the, the biblical text in the New Testament. Then there are these uh, collections of uh, what we call the codexes. These are entire Bibles collected together. Uh, this one, Codex Sinaiticus, is from the third, fourth century, excuse me. Uh, it's a Greek manuscript found in the desert of Mount Sinai. And it's now preserved in the British Museum. If you go there and go to their library section, you can see this book on display. Uh, another ancient manuscript uh, that we have is the Codex Vaticanus, and it's also from the 4th century. It's in two-column Greek text, as you see it there, and it is found in the Vatican Library. Uh, another old witness is the Codex Alexandrinus, discovered in Alexandria, Egypt. It's a 5th century Greek document. Again, it's in two columns. Uh, this is the tail end of the Gospel of John. But you can see uh, some in the margins uh, there, some of the scribal things that uh, the men who were copying, what they put together, and there's even a little decoration. Uh, I guess Bibles were getting decorated uh, at that time uh, as we see it on this manuscript, and it's also uh, on display in the Vatican Museum. Another uh, codex uh, or collection, and this is just a collection of the Gospels. It's not an entire Bible, just the Gospels, and it tells us a little bit of how these works circulated, but this is called the Codex Purpureus. Uh, it's down in southern Italy in a little town called Rossano, and uh, there it is a 6th century Greek text, but it is one of the earliest ones that we find with what we call illuminated pages. First Bible with pictures. All right. And here in the picture is the scene of uh, Jesus being on trial before Caiaphas. And then underneath is, the, uh, is Judas returning and throwing the money to the chief priests because he's betrayed innocent blood. Well, this is on display there in Rossano, Italy. And uh, again, it is one of the earliest Bibles that we have with uh, illuminated like this. And then there are the lectionaries, the portions of the Bible that are given to us. And I'll try to run real fast here because we're running out of time. But uh, here you see the scribe at his task. He's got the stylus. He's got the sheets of paper that he's writing on. He's got all the things for making everything uh, right and correct. And again, these portions of Scripture written for worship. Uh, are a great testimony to the manuscript evidence that we have. And all of this, all this does is it gives us a high reliability that what we have here is the word of God, not the work of men. Ancient manuscripts, ancient works. Uh, there's a history of Thucydides written in 400 B.C., do you know this is only available on the basis of eight Greek manuscripts? But nobody doubts the history of Thucydides. Uh, and other ancient documents are like this as well. The history of Tacitus, a Roman historian who talked about the lives of the 12 Caesars. Uh, everyone, again, accepts the word of Tacitus uh, without, uh, without doubt. It survives today only on the basis of two Greek manuscripts that are written in the margins of other manuscripts. But nobody doubts Tacitus. 
So why do we doubt the Bible? Why does the skeptic and the scoffer and the doubter look at the Bible and say, oh, it's not like that. It's, it's not the word of God. 5,000 Greek manuscripts, many Greek papyri and fragments dating to the early 3rd century, 2,200 lectionary in, uh, entries. Brother Neil Lightfoot, who's made a great little book that sometime if you can get and put in your own personal library, it's called How We Got the Bible. He says, the ancient and numerous witnesses can only be accounted through the providence of God. God was overseeing to make sure of all of these things. Now, there are sometimes variations between some of the Greek manuscripts. Brother J.W. McGarvey did a lot of study in defending the Bible, and he said this in his Evidences of Christianity. He says, when we consider all the foregoing sources of corruption to which the sacred text was exposed for 1,400 years, again, think of the Bible being hand-copied for all this time, easily could have been corrupted, easily could have been changed. He said the, the, there are the multitude of accidental stake, mistakes, which are a long line of copyists that were exposed. The constant temptation by... Uh, some ambitious scholars to make what they thought were improvements in style and some the irresistible inclination on the part of sectaries that are engaged in controversy. You know, there, there, there were the various religious debates that they were in, engaged in. And so the temptation would be as a copyist, let me go and write the Bible the way I, where it backs up my view. That's what he's saying here. He said that wasn't done. And so when you think about all these things, McGarvey says, it's not, uh, we have reason to be surprised, not that there are so many various readings, but that they are so few and of so little importance. All right? Let me show you how textual variation occurs. You remember those two pages of the, the Codex Sinaiticus with the two columns there? Well, it's all written, they're all capital letters, no punctuation, uh, it's hard to know where a sentence begins and ends and all of that. And so you have to do a little bit of interpretation of what was the author saying here, right? Variation comes in where you might read one thing and I might read another, right? Here's what a sign by an arrogant atheist did when he put this sign out on the front of his store. This is what he wrote, all right? Little girl coming along later said, this is what I see. <laughs> it's the same letters, isn't it? But the way you combine them comes out to a different in, uh, intent from what that atheist man intended. And what I'm saying is, when you have Greek text that's like this, line, 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 and no breaks, no chapter division, no verse division, you can run into some variations in this kind of way. And that's why we have some of the variations that we find in our Bibles. And this is why we have a science called textual criticism. And textual criticism on this basis helps us to be able to say, I can know for certain I've got what God intended me to have. Uh, Sir Frederick Kenyon, who wrote many years ago, and his own daughter, uh, Kathleen Kenyon, became a world-renowned uh, biblical archaeologist. 
But he said the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the word of God handed down without essential loss from generation to generation through the centuries. Right? We can be assured that when we pick up the Bible, we have a thus saith the Lord and not thus copy the scribe. And that's what I want to have in my faith. And so again, one final thing about translation through most of its history, the Bible has been, uh, we've had to depend on translations. And we're thankful for those translations because the translation in man's word is revolutionary. Uh, when you read the story of the, the Reformation, one of the great things that happens is the Bible is taken out of this dead language of Latin that only church people knew, and now it's put into the common language of the people in English and other, uh, other languages in the time of the Reformation. And everywhere that Bible came to man in his language, it was revolutionary. They broke free of the traditions that had held them and bound them for all those years. And brethren, we can be thankful that we can read this Bible in an English translation, though it cost many, many martyrs their lives just to hand us that Bible. And so in summary, how did we get the Bible? Well, Providence has overseen the giving and receiving process. God has gave it. Man has received it. It has been by inspiration, it's given by God, it through canonicity and transmission has been received by man. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, when you received it, you received it as it really was, really is, the word of God. And brethren, I'm thankful that because of this, you and I can say like Timothy was told long ago, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a great? Thank you for your kind attention tonight. I know this has been a long, rather quick kind of subject, and it's, uh, like I say, it, it, in some ways it is complex, but I hope in, in another way you can take this with confidence and be able to share to a friend or neighbor, here's God's word, let's study it together. Let's be obedient to what it teaches. Thank you for a good Bible class tonight.